0: Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. I've been attempting in the, these sessions... The day sessions to deal with uh, the nature, what, what we're like, what man is like. Uh, with the basic text, the Jeremiah ten twenty three passage, I know, Lord, that man's way is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. It is not in Adam's way. His way is not in himself. The individual, the goal-oriented creature, the, the means of to even determine where he's supposed to go or the means to get there after he's determined he doesn't have within himself. That we, uh, if we're to tick right, there has to be another in our life. That to be a person demands another. That there is no such thing as a person in isolation. Uh, we referred to those, uh, the lectures of John McMurray, saying that... Uh, there is no such thing as a person in isolation. For a person to be a person, there has to be another for him to interact with and uh, draw from and give to. And we said, uh, picked up what McMurray said, that our model is wrong. That the model that has been basic to modern thought from the days of Descartes has been man in individuality, man in isolation, man by himself. I think, therefore I am, the emphasis upon the I. So there's been something egocentric about modern thought. We begin with the I. When that's not the place to begin if we're to understand ourselves. You can't begin with the I if you're to understand yourself because you're not self-explanatory. You're not even self-originating. Or are you self-sustaining? Or are you self-fulfilling? So how can I be explained if I start with I, if none of those things are true about me? But that's the way modern thought, and that's the way modern scholarship has tended to begin, with the I. So McMurray says we're egocentric. But not only are we egocentric, we tend to glorify man as the thinker. And by thinking, we mean thinking detached from life, speculative thinking, theoretical thinking. Man in isolation, man detached. And he said, when you get man like that, you don't have a whole man. You've got uh, an illusory view of what it means to be a human being. Uh, The model is not big enough to cover us. Last night, I referred to the volume by uh, Peter Berger, A Rumor of Angels. And let me go back to that and remind you of some of what I said to illustrate what I'm saying here. You remember that uh, he wrote a book in the 60s on a sociology of religion called The Sacred Canopy. And as a professional, as a scholar, he worked with his scholarly methodology. And with that methodology, he dealt with the whole matter of man's religion and man's religious experience. And when he, a first-rate scholar, highly technically competent, when he finished, he said uh, there was nothing in the book about religion that he had written that would disturb an atheist. There was, in fact, a number of things in it that would confirm an atheist, and there was nothing there that a good atheist couldn't rip, couldn't have written. And uh, so he said, uh, uh, I was disappointed in that, because he said the problem was that Peter Berger was not an atheist, and Peter Berger had no interest in promoting atheism. So he said, it dawned on me, And I had a bit of the feeling that it had come into clear focus with that than it had ever come before, the limitations of his social science methodology and of the model from which he had been working. Because he said, I realize that Peter Berger, the social scientist, Peter Berger, the sociologist, did not exhaust the personhood of Peter Berger. Now, there are two key things in that. The expression, did not exhaust and then the expression personhood. So that the methodology that our sciences have, the social sciences that deal with man and the model with which they work are not adequate to cover the ultimately personal dimensions of man. And he came to recognize that. So he said, I decided that Peter Berger would write a book to counter the book written by Peter Berger, the social scientist. Now that brought to mind an experience that I had that uh, happened to me one day when I was uh, uh, riding on an airplane looking for in that period at Asbury we needed a good PhD in sociology and I wanted one who'd fitted Asbury I wanted a Christian sociologist committed to Christ and committed to working within biblical principles so I found myself sitting side of uh, on a uh, an Allegheny airline flight one day, sitting side of a graduate student in sociology. And so I thought, good, maybe I can learn some things from him. So I said, you're in sociology, a graduate student. He said, yes. You want to spend your life in sociology? Yes. Do you enjoy it? Yes. I said, well, uh, let me ask you some questions. I'm a novice in sociology, but I've gotten an impression, and I I want you to tell me if I'm wrong. I said, it's my impression that when a sociologist works as a sociologist, that there are certain categories that he cannot use for thinking. Categories of right and wrong, true and false, good and evil. And he blinked, he got still. And finally, he responded very thoughtfully, and he said, that's right. As a sociologist, we do not talk about right and wrong. Good and evil, true and false. And I said, why can't you? He said, well, we have to be objective. And he said, how can I standing within one sociological system, pass judgment on something within another sociological system? And uh, he said, we have to be objective. We can simply report the difference as sociology. I said, then as a social scientist, as a sociologist, you have to operate as if there is no moral order. He said, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that's right. We have to operate technically as if there is no universal moral order. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Why is it all of us are so blooming guilty? And he looked back at me and said, well, that's a tough question. Because it's interesting, the people who've been indoctrinated that guilt is something imposed upon them still feel guilty. The people who feel that guilt isn't legitimate still experience guilt. To be human means to be somewhere you're guilty. And uh, he said uh, that's a tough one. So, uh, I said, do you really enjoy sociology." He said, yeah, I love it. I said, you're going to spend the rest of your life in it. He said, yeah. I said, why? He said, without a thought, there's so many blooming things wrong in the world. Somebody needs to do something about it. It was 40 seconds before, I didn't say a word. It was 40 seconds before he started blushing. And he turned crimson all the way up to his hair. And then he turned and looked at me and said, you trapped And I said, no, I didn't trap you. I had no intention. It was just one of those happy serendipities in the development of a conversation. You see, I didn't trap him. God trapped him. When God made him a person, he trapped him. Because you will remember we said two things about God. We're made in his image, and there are two essence statements in Scripture. One of them is God is holy, and the other is God is love. Which means, if we're made in his image, there's no way you can keep from moralizing. I noticed that Nixon moralized everything about Watergate. And I noticed that Adolf Hitler moralized everything about the execution of the Jews. Man is a moral creature, and he can build a methodology and a whole educational system that rules that out. But when he begins to make personal decisions instead of professional decisions, he acts as a person, even though he doesn't act as a person when he's a sociologist. And so I've come to believe that man's bigger than his mother. And why is he bigger? Because he's made in the image of God. And that's, that's what is being said in Jeremiah when he said, I know, O Lord, that Adam's way is not in himself. It is not in the individual who walks with all of his purposes to cure the problems of society. It is not in him. What's needed is not in him. Either what he needs to do or how to do it, the power to do it, is not in him. It's not in us. We're bigger than our minds. And so he was trapped by himself. And he could act professionally, go to his office and for eight hours a day operate as a social scientist. But when he got out and made personal decisions, he acted as a person instead of a social scientist. And you can be a social scientist in the fullest sense without being fully personal. you say. So when McMurray says we need a different model, I find myself on the basis of my experience in the educational world saying he's dead right. We need some way or other. To get a different view of man as to what he is and what his needs are. And of course, it's a reflex of what Jesus was saying when he said uh, to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone. There is that extra dimension within man. And that's what Berger was getting at with his rumor of angels. Now, uh, I suspect that if the social scientists have had a wrong model, I suspect there are days when the theologians have had wrong. And that maybe we need to look at, uh, at at some of our limited models. Now, wrong is maybe not the right word to use. I think maybe we should say limited models. The model that is used in the social sciences is a valid model. It just isn't big enough to cover the man who uses it. So let me say limited rather than wrong. I've been rereading some theology in uh, recent months and uh, it's been interesting to find a, sort of a hunger in me for that kind of thing at my stage of the game. I don't know what that says, but I went back and reread a good chunk of Calvin. I remember reading Calvin at Princeton with uh, Georges Barrois, a Frenchman who uh, was in the Vatican and uh, wrote maybe in it today the best two volume work on biblical archaeology in existence. Brilliant philosopher, too. As you get those rare com that combinations are rare in our circles, but not too un not too unusual in some uh Roman Catholic circles, but he in the Vatican read uh, uh John Calvin and became a Presbyterian and so uh, when you read John Calvin with him, it was a labor of love. It was fun to watch uh the way Calvin had been the one who turned on the lights for him but uh I've been rereading Calvin, and all of us stand in the heritage of the Reformation. And uh, through our period for the last 400 years, like McMurray says that we've used uh, Descartes' uh, basic uh, principle as our principle for intellectual thought, I think we've tended to use the reform principles and the reform categories for our theological thought. And what do we talk about the most? We talk about justification by faith, and the Reformation has become the touchstone for orthodoxy. Now, I don't want to—I don't want to kick that. I don't want to say for—I'm not—I'm not opposing that for a minute. Let me say, Luther—the uh, sun rose when Luther came on the horizon, and light broke into incredibly dark places. And all you have to do is read Roland Bainton, or uh, you can even read the Roman Catholics now on the Reformation. And as you read them, you will find that uh, the Reformation was an incredible burst of light from God to a society that uh, was pretty well dark. So I don't want to kick it. I want to talk about the adequacy of it and wonder if 400 years later we shouldn't have moved to a more adequate model than they had. Now, you will notice that what the thrust of it was is how a man can be justified. Now, justification is a legal concept, isn't it? And the concept is a forensic one. The context, the analogy into which it fits is the courtroom. And you got the judge on the bench and you got the criminal standing before him. One of the greatest sermons I ever heard was preached by Henry Clay Morris. And he told about how uh, when he was a boy, an orphan boy, he broke the law. And so the policeman came and got him. And uh, if you ever heard the sermon, you remember he found himself in the courtroom in the dock. There was a big blue uniformed policeman standing, glowering over him to be sure that he uh, didn't uh, vacate. And uh, his name was called. The judge called out the case of Bud Morris. And he looked down and said, uh, son, do you have uh, a account- Do you have counsel? He said, I didn't know what counsel was. He said, do you have anybody to plead your case? Do you have a lawyer? He said, no, he didn't have a lawyer. He looked down at the young lawyers that were sitting there and called one out and said, you serve as his counsel. And he said, uh, the young lawyer got up and walked over and sat down to him. And he said, I watched his face as he came to me. And he said, there was something in his face that made me believe he cared about me. He said, and in that alien context in a courtroom, when I was scared out of my wit, He sat outside and put his arm around me and pulled me over. And I thought, could it be I've got a friend in this alien place? And he said, he looked at me and said, son, are you guilty? And he said, I burst into tears and said, oh, sir, I did a lot more than they ever caught me at. (laughs) He said, well, you better, we better then just throw you on the mercy of the court. He said, but then I'd fallen in love with my lawyer enough that if he was going to do the throwing, I was ready for him to throw me anywhere. So he said. Stood. He said the lawyer stood up and said, uh, "Your Honor." He said, uh, "My count. My client pleads guilty." He says he's he's guilty of the charge. And he said uh, then my my lawyer made my plea, and he said uh, he made a plea that the judge would uh, release him in his custody and let him his lawyer be responsible for. It. And he said in the course of his plea for me. He forgot himself, I suppose, because he said he looked up at the judge and said, Father, if you'll release him into my custody, I'll be responsible for it. He said, can you imagine how my heart leaped? I knew if that boy was the son of that judge, that judge wasn't going to say no to his son, and I was going to get out. And I was going to get out in the hands of somebody that loved me. He said, now, you know, it wasn't a courtroom, really. It was a little Methodist church. And that uh, blue uniformed policeman wasn't a policeman, it was the holy ghost who convicted me and brought me to justice. And he said, uh, it wasn't a a bar, it was a mourner's bench. And he said, the man on the bench was not a judge, he was our heavenly father. And he said, my advocate was none other than Jesus himself. He preached that. But now isn't it interesting? Court's saying. That's authentic, and it's biblical. Because our God is judge. And he's given us the law. And what causes us to sense our need of him is we've broken his law. and So we're criminals. And we deserve judgment. But there is a process whereby the judge, their place and their penalty is taken by the judge. And so a man can be justified before God. And you know the old definition of of justified is just as if I had never sinned. My sin is forgotten. My sin is forgotten. And I stand legally acceptable before God. And that's basically the thrust of justification. Now, it's interesting. uh, Those of you who have been with us, you may remember something I said earlier. But the only way you can talk about God is by analogy. And so we use the analogy of a courtroom, and we use the analogy of a judge. But now I want to say, I've come to the place, and i said that to you before, but let me repeat it because it's a different way of thinking, at least it was for me. There's a primary analogy, and there's secondary analogies. The secondary analogies are analogies that are taken out of the nature of human society and are used to explain God. But there is a primary analogy that's taken out of the nature of God and is used to explain men. And it's interesting that God can be explained by men, and man can be explained by God, which I think is thoroughly biblical. We're made in his image and so it can work both ways. But, you know, you always have a better chance of getting an authentic picture if you look at the original instead of the copy. I believe I'd rather work with a primary analogy than a secondary analogy. Now I believe the secondary analogy is valid. And the court scene is valid. But there is a primary analogy. That court scene is taken out of the nature of society. Now what's the one that's taken out of the nature of God? It's the father-son family relationship. Because before there was ever a judge, God was the eternal father. And before there was ever a sinner, the second person of the Trinity was the Eternal Son. Now, the, it's interesting that the Scripture talks as much about new life and new birth as it does about justification. And I read the Gospel of John. I don't read much about justification by faith, but I read about being born again and becoming children of God. I read Romans. Written to a Roman world, it talks about sinners called before the court of Justice, and they're justified. One is a civic, civil, criminal relationship of court. The other is something infinitely more intimate. Now, if you will read John Wesley, you will find that John Wesley talks more about new birth and adoption than he does about justification. At least he balances these out. And it's not to be unnoticed that Wesley talks more out of 1 John than he does out of Romans. And Calvin talks more out of Romans than he does out of 1 John. And the Reformation came out of Romans and Wesley came along 200 years later and said God wants something more intimate than a than a citizen who's broken the law of the kingdom and been reconciled to society. Like your illustration last night, he still owes the state of North Carolina Uh, something, but uh, we can settle that. He wants to take us into the bosom of his heart and his home and make us children. I'd I'd rather be an adopted child Than a justified sinner. Now there's no way to be an adopted child. Without being a justified sinner. But it's a step closer. To what God really wants me to be. Now. uh, If you go this way. You have added a dimension. It seems to me. To the preaching that we ought to do. And to the hope that we ought to put in the hearts of our people. But let me go a step farther. I believe there is another analogy that's sort of in between the primary analogy and the secondary analogies. They're the let me say it again, they're the analogies that are taken out of human life and are used to explain God and his relationship to us. Now, when I was growing up in Sunday school, I was taught that the family relationship was that kind. I was taught that the unique thing about Jesus was he told us we could call God Father and he took this beautiful earthly metaphor and he applied it to God and brought him into intimacy with us. When the reality is God took that metaphor that describes his nature and says we can come into that. It moves the other way. as the second one. And that's the matter of marriage. Because uh, I used to think that the scripture says that uh, Christ loves the church the way a husband ought to love his wife. minute. Well, yeah. But really what the scripture says is, I am supposed to love my wife. That's the secondary application. The way Christ really loves the church. That is not like this. This is supposed to be like that. Because, you see, Christ loved his church before there ever was a human being. In fact, Christ died in his own heart for his church before she was born. The church is not an earthly institution to explain. To explain our relationship to God. The church is a divine institution. Born in the mind and heart of God, and there in divine reality before there was ever a human being. So that this is supposed to be like that, not that is like this. Now, you'll notice here some of my views of inspiration. I don't believe that the Old Testament prophets looked around at the society and said, What's the most beautiful of all human relationships? It is that of a faithful husband to a faithful wife. Self-sacrificial love on the part of a man for the woman, and self-sacrificial love on the part of one woman for one man. Now, that's the way God loves Israel. I think they saw into the heart and mind of God, and saw that God, when he created man, made him to be in a special relationship to himself. So that when man was created, he was made to be a bride. And it's funny, the first bride was not a female. The first member of the bride was not a female. The first member of the bride was a male. Because Adam was formed before Eve. If you have any problem with that, let me toss something else in. It's interesting that in the new covenant, the mark of the people of God is baptism. And whether you dip them to show that it's resurrection to new life, or you sprinkle them to show that the only way you can live this new life is through his gift of the Spirit to us. It's not a life lived in the flesh. Man's way is not in himself. Every baptismal ceremony is a commentary on Jeremiah 10.23. In the New Covenant, the symbol of the people of God, the mark, is baptism. It's interesting that the mark of the people of God in the Old Testament is physically at the point where a husband has union with his wife. And written into their ritual and liturgy was what Israel was supposed to do. So it's no accident that the mark was not on the woman, it was on the man. Because his commitment is first. And she is to find her union in him as he finds his fulfillment in her. And so there it was. Marriage was in the mind of God, of the church to Christ, before Eve was ever formed and given to Adam. So that's the prior analogy. Now, let me say, uh, I think you've got a completely different context to preach theology if you preach from the prior analogies as well as the secondary analogies. Because, you see... uh, In one, it's not legal status that you get. It's likeness of nature. And Wesley, I think, saw that difference. And I've never heard anybody else, theologian, discuss it quite that way. Wesley saw it, and it is not an accident that the end of Wesleyan theology is not in justification but it is in transformation change somebody in this group said to me yesterday I lived too long with people who wanted people to get just enough Christianity that they could say they were saved I remember uh, a man who influenced me at one period in his life, he was a missionary in Africa he was a member of a large prominent fundamentalist church in this country And if I were to name the pastor, many of you that are anywhere near my age would would remember the name. A man that, interestingly enough, had a profound influence on Billy Graham. But he turned to him one day and said, Doctor, what is your objective in preaching? Oh, he said, my objective is to get people saved. He said, uh, that's your objective. Oh, yes, he said, that's my one objective in my preaching ministry at a massive church. And he said, oh, you mean to get more people like the problems you've already got in this church? And he said, you know, the pastor got upset with him. Now, if you take the reformed analogy and limit it to that, you're being perfectly reformed in doing. I'm not kicking the Reformation. I'm profoundly indebted to a Presbyterian preacher who probably influenced me as much as, probably the greatest man I ever knew intimately. Profoundly influenced me. Grateful for that tradition. Wouldn't take anything in the world for two years at Princeton. But you see, when Wesley came along, why did he talk about sanctification? Because he said it was not enough to get them to where they were called Christians. He believed that if a man was called Christian somewhere, there there ought to be enough grace to make him not only the noun, but the adjective. And there's a vast difference between the noun and the adjective, isn't there? And what is the difference? It's not legal status. The difference is in nature. And so the emphasis in Wesley was on new birth, transformation. And renewed in the image of God. Now, it is no accident. I've been interested uh, in trying to reconcile Wesley and uh, the reformers at times. I've had the chance to preach in some reform circles. Uh, and let me say, a great prophet wouldn't take anything for him. I'll never forget being in an interversity conference, a uh, student leadership conference. And the second man in interVarsity in this country, after he'd heard me preach about three days, said to me, "You know, Dennis, you and I ought to take a long walk." And so we took a long walk. When we came back, he looked at me. He had been a student work in Japan. He'd been a student work in Europe. He'd been. In, he was a second. He was a graduate of Yale and MIT. Uh, he was a very knowledgeable person. He looked at me and said, "You know, Dennis, you're the first person I've ever met who believes what you believe." Now, uh, I've been interested in trying to reconcile these two systems. You talk to a person from the Reformed tradition about Wesley's teaching on Christian perfection, and they instantly become nice, but they've already shut you out. Because that's blasphemous heresy, too. And I've tried it. You talk to them about entire sanctification, and instantly, they'll be nice. They tolerate you from that point on. Wait a minute, that's my experience. And let me say, I once, I used to get irritated by it, and now I'm very compassionate. I understand why they do. If I believed and had their categories, I'd say the same thing. And if I had their definitions, because, you see, their definition is perfection in terms of an objective law. And who is there going to say that he has never at any point, never at any point failed? You see, that's the analogy they've got. That law standing out there and they're relating to it. But now, you know, I don't believe he called me to be a citizen. I know we're citizens of the kingdom, but I don't believe he called me to be only a citizen of the kingdom. I think he called me to a more intimate thing. And it's interesting, when you define sin, wait a minute, when you define wrong in the family, it's different from what it is in society. I go through a speed zone, and it's 35 miles an hour, and I don't know it. And he picks me up, and I'm going 42 miles an hour, and said, I never saw this sign. He said, it makes me good. My son, I come in and I say, why didn't you do what I told you to do? I left a note for you. He said, Dad, I never found it. It's interesting how. Wrong. What breaks fellowship in the family is very different from what breaks fellowship in a courtroom. They're two different things. Now, in in, in the family analogy, we're to be sons, daughters. But more than that, we're to be spouses. Uh, And I think that's the reason Wesley ended up saying the essence of the gospel is love. Because what is it that binds a marriage together? It isn't performance. It's something better than performance. There is something better than performance. As what Wallace preached earlier, there's something better than performance. It's faithful love. Uh, And I think there is something in our heritage and in our tradition that we're losing out of the church today. And we need to rediscover it. We need to preach it to people. That they can be his children. And more than that, they can come to the place where he's the first love of their lives. And they've kept all of the law because love is the fulfilling of the law, not performance. It's a different thing. Now, uh, I I think that Wesley, coming two centuries later, saw some things. There was no way Luther could have seen, and no way Calvin could have seen. As one old uh, professor at Princeton said to me, "You can't fight two battles at one time. So don't look to the reformers for teaching on entire on sanctification, because that was not their battle. The question was how you could be justified, how you could be saved from eternal judgment." He said, if you're going to know the Reformed tradition of hope, you have to wait until the 18th century and look at the Wesleys. And uh, then uh, some of my thinking began. I began to get less embarrassed about Methodist perfectionism. Because what was a perfection he talked about? It was was the perfection that comes when uh, a husband loves his wife with all his heart, And there's no rival to her. And when she comes to the place where she loves him with all her heart, and there's no competitor and no rival, and they give their lives for each other, and they give them forever. And that's what he's after. And when that takes place, we're renewed in the image. Because what's the model? The model is not a citizen before the bench. It is the Trinity. Three persons that live together in mutual self-giving love and he says now I want you to enter into that with me about four years ago I read for the first time uh, Dante's uh, divine comedy I never read it before uh I always thought that Dante's divine comedy would be a horrible medieval uh, bit of literature and I I'm not very good at poetry anyway uh, I have a hard enough time reading, simple prose, and then you put it in poetry, and I, I lose, get lost real fast. I was amazed at how it races, and how beautiful the thing is. And uh, it's interesting that the theme in Divine Comedy is a man who is saved, and who is it who leads him to salvation? It's Beatrice who leads Dante to the salvation. Now, you know how old Beatrice was when Dante fell in love with her? She was eight. And you know how old Dante was when he fell in love? He was nine. Now, it took me a little while to understand why she was eight and he was nine. But it was because it was pre-puberty. Before orgasmic sex has anything to do with male-female relationships pure femininity and pure masculinity bumping into each other. That automatic attraction, it has nothing to do with what we know about is sex today. We have a four-year-old granddaughter whose name is Abigail. she got got long, blonde pigtails. She was overstaying with her aunt, uh, and uh, her aunt had company, and the neighbor couple that they're close to saw that our daughter Beth had company foreign car there and so uh, she sent over some cookies to help Beth entertain her her company, whatever it was that's kind of a neighbor to have, isn't it? so she sent it with her little boy (laughs) and so her little boy shows up and punches the doorbell and when Beth comes to the door Abigail comes along and stands side of her and looks A four-year-old girl looks at a four-year-old boy. And uh, he hands the cookies to Beth with a note attached. And so Beth looks at the note, and while she's reading it, the little four-year-old boy looks over at the little blonde girl with the pigtails. And uh, he sort of stands, and in a few minutes, he looks over at her, And he raises one hand and goes. And Abby looks back at him and Beth suddenly loses interest in the note to watch what's going on. And the little four-year-old girl raises her hand and goes. It's in the system. Now Beatrice was the one who led Dante from purgatory to heaven to God. They go through purgatory and they're headed up through the Imperium. They're getting now toward God himself. And as they move toward God, he's never taken his eyes off Beatrice as they move through the Imperium. She's the one who's led him all the way. Or been responsible for his leadership all the way she hasn't leading, So he just never takes his eyes off her as they zoom at infinite speed toward God. And as they move, he suddenly becomes aware that he's getting close to the deity. And he suddenly looks away from her and looks at God. And he has two simultaneous experiences. One of them is instant guilt because he's looked away from the one who's brought him so far Beatrice, the blesser. And she has been the means of blessing to her. Instant guilt, because he's looked away from the one who's brought him to God. And the second experience is, he hears a tinkle of laughter, joyous laughter. And it's Beatrice laughing, because he has looked away from her. Her nose isn't broken, because he's looked beyond her. She has had the highest experience that a mortal can ever have. She has become the means of pointing another person beyond herself to the eternal God. And she is exalted in that moment. That's the purpose of the creature. That's the purpose of the creature. But as he looks, he sees God. what does he see? He sees three circles. Three concentric circles. With one circumference. And he looks and the second circle comes out of the first one. And the third circle comes out of the first two. And the third circle is a flame of fire. The Holy Spirit. And he looks back at the second circle. And he sees the form of a man. that's, That's me, that's as profound a biblical insight as has ever been expressed in literature. How far does God love us? He's not content to keep us at a distance. Where do children belong? They belong in the bosom of the family. And where does a spouse belong? She belongs in your arms. She belongs in an intimacy closer, a physical intimacy. So she belongs in an intimacy closer than any other personal relationship that ever exists. And God says, that's what I'm going to create creatures for. That's what I'm going to make man for. Adam. Adam and Eve. That's what I'm going to create the human race for. So it can take them into the very nature of God. That is not a legal relationship. That's a relationship with the one Little wonder that Wesley talked about holiness. He said, what is Christianity? Repentance is the porch. Justification is the door. Holiness is the house. It's the heart. He's the Holy One. And if I'm going to be in the bosom of the Father, I'm going to have to be holy. And if I'm going to be in those arms, uh, embrace me within thine arms. If I'm in that, I'm going to have to love him. And love him more. It will only be love that puts me there. But how is that going to be? The incredible thing is, that's something only he can do. It is only he that can make me like himself. I cannot. The more I work at it, the less I'm like Him. The more I work at it, the more pharisaical I become. And the more moralistic I become, and the more I look down at other people. But the more I lean upon him and trust him. And that's what, the, that's what our theology says. It is by faith. By faith, we're justified. Just as if we'd never sinned, but more than that. By faith, we're born into his family and love is shed abroad in our hearts. And by faith, our love is made perfect. And if we trust him, he will bring us to the place where he is the first love of our lives. And when he is the first love of our life, nothing else really matters. We're eligible for that embrace then. <laughs> and what old Dante saw there is what you and I are going to be. That's where we're headed. We're headed for that. Now, uh, Christians have a, ought to have a light in their eyes that nobody else in, in the world has. It's interesting, human history, if you think I'm stretching it and sentimentalizing it, hold on. It's interesting that the climax of the creative process, as we said yesterday afternoon, was a wedding, not a church service or a court scene. He formed Eve, gave her to Adam, said, here she is just for your enjoyment. The climax of the creative process was a wedding. It's interesting that the last Fact: uh, The last scene in human history is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That makes me understand why the first miracle that Jesus performed was at a wedding. It's appropriate. There's symbolism in it. There's theology in that. But now, is that just something we sort of read into it? Let me let me mention two passages that I never saw until about three years ago. Read them for years. You will remember that they came to John the Baptist. And they said to John the Baptist in John 3. Uh, you used to have great crowds. And now those crowds are all gone. And those very people that followed you are following the guy that you introduced. You never introduced him. You still had the crowds. How do you feel about losing your crowd? Now, I remember the text, he must increase and I must decrease. But what else did he say? I miss this for years. I thought it was just a clever sort of tour de force to get him off his back, you know. I don't believe it anymore. I believe this is what he really wanted to say. Does the friend of the bridegroom get upset when at the wedding announcement party the bridegroom upstages the friend of the bridegroom? I believe that's theology. <laughs> I believe that's biblical theology. I didn't see it for years, and when I did begin to see it, I was scared to look at it. But there it is. Apparently, John the Baptist saw Jesus' ministry in nuptial terms. But you'll remember the Pharisees, the Jews came to Jesus and said, there was a guy who came through here not too long ago. You'll find, you know it in Mark 2, said, uh, there was a guy who came through here not too long ago. He had good religion. He fasted. He prayed. His disciples fasted and prayed. You don't fast. And your disciples don't fast. Talking, of course, about his friend, John the Baptist. And I always thought this was sort of, again, a tour de fort, you know, to get him off his back. And rather clever. But I don't believe it anymore. I believe it is a central messianic affirmation. Jesus said. Is it appropriate that the bridegroom fast at his own wedding announcement party? When a bridegroom announces a wedding, it's time for the bridegroom to rejoice. If the wedding's right, and this wedding's right. (laughs) Apparently, Jesus viewed his ministry in nuptial terms. Now, it may be that that's too intimate and too sacred for us to prove. But somewhere our people need to see it. And first of all, we need to see it. We're not supposed to be justified sinners, just We're supposed to be children. In his image. And spouses. Uh, I used to walk across the campus at uh, at Asbury and In the morning, some mornings, I'd have a girl meet me and look at me, catch me sort of shyly and say, Dr. Kenlaw, look what I got last night. Hold up, you know, that hand and I'd see an engagement ring on her finger. I always was amazed at how any boy could pay tuition at Asbury and still buy an engagement ring. But I'd look down and say, who is he if I didn't know? Say, congratulations. Then I'd look at her and say, when's a great day? It's interesting. Never once did I ever have one of look back at me and say, what great day? What great day? All of life reoriented. I remember, is it Tommy Walsh? Died when he was 29, 28 or 29. One of Wesley's preachers. The kind of guy that studied Hebrew one year and never needed the lexicon again. I've been reading Hebrew for 15 years and carry one with me all the time. That's the difference between bright people and dumb people. But Tommy Walsh, brilliant young man, died when he was 29. His last words, where he raised himself in bed and said to Brighton, (laughs) and call it for me (laughs) I like that it's no accident that they said about him there was a purity about his life and a holiness about his person that matched uh, his hope and you'll notice that it's in that context that he says uh, you read Ephesians 5 we're to be without spot without wrinkle we're to be sanctified through His blood, not through our efforts, not through our efforts, and not through our moral lives, but to believe that He can perfect our love to Him to where we are ready for that, because He's first, and supreme. He's the love of our mind. Now, to me, that's a, that's a biblical theology, and it's preachable theology, and it gives people a sense of dignity. We're headed for something better. Something bigger. Uh, I love that Beatrice story. She laughed when he looked away from her. That's what we're to be. <laughs> you know, any preacher that on Sunday morning has been the means of getting people to look beyond him, up there, he can laugh with holy joy when he comes out of the pulpit <laughs> on Sunday morning. <laughs> That's what it's all about. It's a different model, isn't it?